You've all heard this phrase before, practice makes perfect. It's a phrase that's taken a lot of heat over the years. No one can be perfect. Why would anyone say practice makes perfect? But I actually think it's a good statement. Not that you can become perfect in your sport or your instrument, but practice, well done, could make an athlete or a musician complete. Having or possessing those fundamental and intermediate skills that enable them to become advanced or experienced in what they do. So let's think about sports for a minute. The goal is to work into your mind and to train your body through muscle memory, to shoot a free throw, to make a heads up tackle, to swing through in your golf swing almost without thinking. Think about a musician for a little bit. They play, they improvise, they're creative. Why? How? Because they know the scales, they know music theory, they know the chord progressions, and they practice them until they become second nature. Think about your career. The more you do something, Usually, the easier it becomes. You understand, you learn the pitfalls, the seasons, the business. You get better at it. It becomes easier. Psalm 66 is a simple and powerful reminder that worshiping God is one of the fundamental lifelong practices to help us be the people we were meant to be. Worship is that weekly training that reinforces for us It reminds us what we were made for. It puts everything else in perspective, that this is what life is all about. And it's important because there are so many things in life that that get in the way so that we forget that. There are so many things that distract us from the fundamental truth and reality that we were made to have fellowship with the God of the universe. What are some of those things? Stresses of life, disappointments, heartache, anxiety, fear, cynicism, apathy, the world, the flesh, Satan. In life, our souls can get off track. And one of the things that helps set us back on track, that recalibrates us, is worshiping the true and the living God. That's what Psalm 66 is about. This is what I want to suggest to you. When we worship God in the big picture, when we, when we shout for joy to God all the earth, then we can work down in our lives from this big picture worship to what God has done in the world and what God has done in my life and what God has done for my soul. It distills, it trickles down to our personal lives. So we begin with the big picture worship of God and it, and it comes down into a personal worship and relationship with the living God. So let's look at the passage together. First of all, we look at verses 1 through 4. We begin with shout for joy. We start with the big picture. And most of the psalms are actually songs that were meant to be sung. So Psalm 66 is for the choir master to help lead and direct God's people in worship. This is one of the beautiful things about God. He teaches us. He trains us. He helps us 
learn how to worship Him. If you have children, you know what this is about. You have to help teach them how to pray, how to live life for God. God gives us a primer on worship. The Psalms are a primer on how to worship God. At LSU, uh, there is a camp that starts before school. Before you, as you're a freshman, you have this opportunity to go to this camp called Stripes. Some of you have been to Stripes. And at Stripes, you basically learn how to be an LSU student. You learn the traditions. You learn the alma mater. You, you learn the cheers. It's a crash course in being an LSU student. And in, in the same way, Psalm 66 is a crash course where God leads us by the hand and he shows us some of these soul-centering aspects of worshiping the true and living God. Shout for joy. That's what verse 1 says. Here's a picture. Try to imagine it with me. Thousands of people gathered together at the coronation of a king. They're all gathered, and when the coronation is complete, they lift their hands and their voices in a shout of praise to God. That's what Psalm 66 is about. And and the sports uh, connection is so easy here. Think about being in the arena, being on the, in the stadium when your favorite team does something well, what do you do? You, you don't even think about it. You erupt in cheers and celebration. Here the psalmist is saying that we have this great privilege as people to shout for joy to God. Joy because God created us, because he redeemed us, because he cares for us, he adopted us, he loves us. Joy that we know God, more importantly, that God knows us. We're getting ready, aren't we? We're practicing week by week, Sunday by Sunday, because one day God's people will raise our voices with joy with 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, and we will sing joy to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Have you tasted and sensed that joy in your life. It's special. It's sustaining. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Worship helps remind us that we were made to worship God. Shout for joy to God and sing the glory of His name. A huge part of of worship is joy and rejoicing, but there's also a sense of wonder and amazement and awe. The word glory from the Old Testament means weighty. It means heavy. God's glory is amazing and mind-blowing and deep. What is the glory of God's name? Remember when God met Moses at the burning bush and Moses said, who should I say sent me? He said, tell them, I am who I am sent you. Not I was Not I will be. I am the self-existent, self-sustaining, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. We just saw in the book of Exodus the the glory of God revealed at Mount Sinai. You remember when the, the, the priests and the guards came to arrest Jesus in the New Testament? And uh, they said, you know, he said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he replied, I am. And they all fell to the ground because of the glory of his name. 
I use the word awesome a lot. That's awesome, dude. Um, like I'm a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or something. Um, God and his gospel and his glory and his plan and his power, it truly is awesome. It's amazing. That the God of the universe would not only make us, but come to rescue us even after we sinned against him and we've gone our own way. Truly the most amazing, glorious truth of the universe. And, and worshiping God helps put us back on track. We sing the glory of his name and we shout for joy to God. That's how we begin. That's the first thing I want us to see. Secondly, look at verse 5. Come and see. We have a a certain way of saying things in our family. We have a certain way to say, get in here. Which doesn't mean you're in trouble, but it means usually there's something really awesome on TV that you need to see right now. Maybe sports, maybe a soccer play or something. Uh, But there's there's just this tone, get in here right now or else you're going to miss it. You've got to see this. It's absolutely amazing. Look at verse 5. Come and see what God has done. Right worship is not only praising God for who He is, but it's remembering and praising God for what He's done. One of the reasons I chose Psalm 66 for us to begin as we're finishing a, a study in the book of Exodus is that it connects directly to what God did in the Exodus in the book of Exodus, in delivering his people. Look at verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. God brought them out of bondage. He brought them out of slavery. He he redeemed them. He miraculously saved his people. And entwined in the fabric of their lives was a celebration of the Passover so they could never forget. They'd remember what God has done for them. Come and see. What about us? What do we remember about God's plan? How do we celebrate and tell people, come and see what God has done? Well, we look back to a greater deliverance. We look back to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We look back to Him delivering us from the bondage of our sin. We look back to the ministry and life of Christ. We try to wrap our heads and our minds around the reality that even though He was equal with God. He was God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Come and see the work of Jesus Christ. The work God has done. It changes our lives forever. This is one of the reasons why we never get over the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never get past that you ever thought it's kind of weird that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we call it a celebration? you ever thought it odd that Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper and proclaim His death until He comes again? Paul said it like this, I, I decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My friend Jeffrey Lancaster said it like this, here is our fastball, folks. This is a fastball of Christianity. A naked Jew on a Roman cross. What is so powerful about that? 
Why has that message changed people's lives for thousands of years? Because it's in Christ's death that we have life. He was broken so that we can be made whole. He was covered with shame so that we can be blameless before God. He was despised and rejected so we can be accepted. Come and see. You've got to see this. This is what God has done. The passage goes on to describe blessing God. So we see shout for joy, come and see. In verses 8 through 12, bless our God. When we first look at that, we think it's just part of the progression of teaching us how to worship God. But then we look closer and we realize that this section is complicated. It's deep. Uh, to use the words of the kids these days, uh, we might read verses 8 through 12 and say things just got real. Why? Because the psalmist is talking about life and blessing God in the midst of and in the light of trials and suffering and difficulty in his life. Look with me. Oh God, you've tested us. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. Those are the words of somebody who has a relationship with God, who can be honest with God, somebody who believes that God was even with him in the midst of the hardest things he ever walked through in his life. These are words of someone who believed in God's hand in everything. And that's hard. That is hard to believe. It's hard to comprehend. But it's so much better than the alternative. That God is not in control. That God has no connection with this world. And that his hand is not in the details of our lives. Derek Kidner said it like this. The biblical practice of seeing God's hand in all events makes our suffering as meaningful as the deliverance. There's a purpose in the pain in your life. Verse 10 talks about it. You've tested us and tried us as silver. You know how to get the impurities out of silver or gold? You heat it. You melt it. And the dross the impurities rise to the surface and then the silversmith takes away those impurities and it's pure silver or pure gold. God is molding us. He's shaping us. He's refining us and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, into something beautiful and glorious. And there will be times when it hurts and when we're sad and when we're in the darkness and and it feels like we're all alone. When we're tempted to think that God has forsaken us or God has forgotten us. And in those times, that's when we stop and we pray. Lord, help me. I don't know what to do. Hold my hand. Be with me. Give me relief. Teach me how much I need you. Help me to bless you and thank you in the midst of my trials. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this day. Lord, help. And what's the pledge 
that God can work through tragedy and difficulty. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. If God could use the death of His own Son to bring about hope and glory and redemption for folks like us, He can use the baggage and the pain and the difficulties in our lives for our good and for His glory. My friend Ben Shaw said it like this, We want our lives to be like the pizza buffet. Um, you guys have been to the pizza buffet before? And, uh, you know, you go and take all the pieces you want, right? And when we go to the pizza buffet, we almost always eat too much pizza, right? And imagine yourself sitting there. Um, you've had way too much. You're stuffed. And then you hear these fateful words. And everyone, everyone rushes up to the pizza bar like it's their last meal. No one leaves the, the pizza buffet thinking, you know what, that was a really healthy and good decision. Um, God's work in our lives is more like a recipe than a buffet. And there are things in recipes that we would never eat by themselves. Salt, baking powder, baking soda, flour, raw eggs, vanilla extract, and whatever other things go in to make a cake. You mix them all together, and they're wonderful. You eat them by themselves, and they're repulsive. God's work in our lives is like a recipe, not a buffet. Some things are bitter. Some things hurt. We don't know why, but we do know He's using them to make something beautiful. Bless Him and trust Him and seek Him. How does the psalm continue? Verses 13 through 15 talk about a sacrifice of praise. This part of the progression in worship to the Lord, rejoice in Him, who He is, what He's done, even in the midst of trials in your life, and bring to Him a sacrifice of praise. We get to offer sacrifices to God. It's a commitment to do something from our hearts, from a heart that has said, God has done so much for me. It's this loving response. It's the same response as when you look at the cross and you think of the work of Christ and you say, I want to serve and love you, God, with my whole heart. The, the songwriter says it like this. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to you, God. And th- what's interesting is we don't bring bulls and goats. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. One of the things that's interesting as we think about bringing these sacrifices to God as part of worshiping Him is that these were and are costly sacrifices. God's people in the Old Testament, you know, in a largely agricultural economy, wealth and sustenance and security, it was measured largely by livestock. 
When the psalmist talks about bringing bulls and goats that have been fattened, the idea was to bring God the best that you have. To bring Him the best. There's a cost. It may be mean being misunderstood or mocked because you're committed to the Christian ethic. Many brothers and sisters of ours around the world are facing persecution, financial loss, physical punishment, death because they follow Jesus Christ. Many times the cost of offering our lives as sacrifices to God comes as we battle ourselves and our sins on the battlefield of lust and pride and addiction, pornography, of disordered eating or cutting or gossip or cheating. Look at verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. A huge part of us offering living sacrifices to the Lord is the practice of repentance. Now for a lot of people, if we're honest, repentance is not a word that we like to use. Uh, I'll do the faith and lean on God and trust in His love thing, but if you want me to repent, I will put that off until later. Here's the thing. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Part of the goal and aim of true worship is that we see ourselves and we see our sin and we run back to Jesus Christ. Acts Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads to times of refreshing from God. Are there sins that you're cherishing in your life? Lord, you know I can't give that up. May God give you the courage and the vision and the hope to seek Him in His face through repentance even when you're scared to death of losing that thing that you think you need so much. Here's the bottom line. Jesus Christ is worth it. Living for Him and with Him is the greatest privilege that we have in the whole universe. I read this quote a few months ago when we did the Servant Leadership Series. It's from a guy named William Still. Israel's sheep were reared, fed, tended, retrieved, healed, and restored. Why? For sacrifice on the altar of God. This is the end of all pastoral work, and it must never be forgotten that its ultimate aim is to lead God's people to offer themselves up to Him in total devotion of worship and sacrifice. Sacrifices of praise. Lastly, come and hear, verses 16 through 20. We do this all the time. You've got to hear this new song. You've got to listen to this obscure band that no one else knows about except for me. You've got to listen. Everyone's really proud of their playlist on Spotify. And uh, in Psalm 66, this is the culmination of the progression. Corporate big picture worship and praise filtered through trials, joy, joyful sacrifices to God. And then this. Listen to this. Come and hear, verse 16, all you who fear, fear God 
and I will tell you what God has done for my soul. See how that works? He started big picture, and it comes down to this truth and reality. This is what God has done for me. You've got to hear this. This is one of the joys and the blessings of Christianity. It's personal. It's intimate. Christianity is not a set of rules. It's not a list of things that you have to check off. It is a personal relationship with the living God. And come and see what the Lord has done for my soul. It's not just what He did in the past. It's what God has done in the present. Personal, applicable. He listens to me. He hears our prayers. He he remembers my sighs and my tears. He's not removed His steadfast love from me. He cares for me. He laid down His life for me. He's with me. He brought me from death to life. He helped me walk through the darkest days of my life. You know when you talk to somebody and they're just imagining in love? They can't stop talking about that person. You've seen grandparents that have the bumper sticker. Let me tell you about my grandkids. It's not because they have to. They love their grandchildren and they're proud of them. And it's their joy to talk about their grandchildren. Worship moves us toward intimate love and fellowship with God, and it makes sense that we talk about it. It makes sense that we talk about it with other Christians. It doesn't have to be weird or cheesy. You don't have to go up to your friends and say, I had a killer quiet time this morning. Uh, It can be honest and humble. God's teaching me a lot lately. I've been amazed at how he answers prayer. Think about what it means to trust in him. I've been learning what it means to trust in him with my future. And it can even be, I'm struggling in my life. And I have doubt and fear and sin. And I don't know what to do. And that brother or sister can come alongside you and love you and encourage you and walk with you. This is how God worked in my life. Maybe it will be helpful for you. We can build each other up. Telling what God has done for our souls is one of the ways that we can connect with non-Christian people. It kind of demystifies evangelism, part of you know, us telling our, our story to other people. What do I say? How do I approach my friends or my neighbors about what I believe? Tell them what God has done for you. This is what God has done in my soul. In my life. This is how he's changed and transformed me. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. But this is what I do know. That Christ Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And he's my help. It would almost be weirder if you were friends with people for a long period of time. And you never told them the most important thing about who you are. And what you believe. So I want to close with two questions. First of all. Can you say with the psalmist, look what God has done for my soul? Is Christ, his life, his death, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, the good news of the gospel, is that something that has deep and meaningful significance for you? Is it personal for you? That's a fundamental question that you need to ask. And if you're not sure about the answer to that question, this is the place you need to be to investigate the claims of Christianity.
We'd love to walk alongside you and help you answer that question and and help show you how God's story can become part of your story. Second question is this. If you can say, this is what God has done for my soul, did you know that there are more pages and more chapters and more stanzas being added weekly, daily, monthly, yearly in your life? It's not just what He did a long time ago. It's what God has done and is doing now. And that is one of the great privileges and joys of living the Christian life in in this this adventure of learning more and more how much God has done for me. I think about Polycarp. No, that's not a kind of fish. Polycarp was an early church father. He was discipled by the Apostle John. He'd seen Christianity grow and explode in the first century. As an old man, he was arrested by the Romans for being a Christian. And he was brought into this arena where people mocked and ridiculed him for his faith. And he was tied to a stake and the wood and kindling were put around him and the Roman proconsul lit a small part of the fire and he said, deny Christ or burn. And you know what this man said? For 86 years I've served Christ. And he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? He was a man whose life was shaped by worship and fellowship with the living God. Never forget what God has done for your soul. Let's pray.